Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the ATS section of Medical Education Podcast. I'm Rosemary Adamson. I'm an attending at the Seattle VA and an assistant professor at the University of Washington. And I'm James Town, a senior fellow in pulmonary and critical care at the University of Washington, and we're the host of this podcast where we will discuss topics in medical education, a.k.a. med-ed. We're both clinician educators, so we're hoping to do some educating along the way. For our first podcast, I'm going to interview the current chair of the section on medical education, Dr. Patricia Critic, of the University of Washington. But before the interview, we're going to start with some food for thought. Yes, following the great tradition of car talk puzzlers, we're going to start each podcast with a question from the ATS Maintenance of Certification, or MOC, core curriculum questions. If you haven't heard of these, there are board review style questions that are developed yearly by leaders in medical education and released at the annual ATS meeting. And at the end of the podcast, we'll hear the answer and rationale. So, James, what's the MOCQ? Today's MOCQ comes from the Sleep Medicine Core Curriculum. Are you ready? Probably not. Like a lot of pulmonologists and parents of young children, I may not be up to date in my sleep. But go ahead anyway. The question is, a 24-year-old male with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and a forced vital capacity of 40% predicted is seen for routine follow-up. He complains of new daytime fatigue. On physical examination, he is seated in a motorized wheelchair and no respiratory distress with a BMI of 24.4 kilograms per meter squared. His saturation is 96% on room air and a modified Malampati Class three airway. Cardiac examination is normal and the lungs are clear. A sleep study is performed showing reduced sleep efficiency of 66% and rapid eye movement-related hypoxemia with a total apnea hypopnea index, or AHI, of 3.4 events per hour and an oxygen saturation nadir of 85%. And the question is, which is the next best step in the management of this patient? Choice A, tracheostomy for consideration of invasive mechanical ventilation. Choice B, initiate nocturnal oxygen. Choice C, initiate nocturnal non-invasive ventilation. Choice D, reassurance and continued serial clinical evaluations. Or choice E, initiate nocturnal continuous positive airway pressure. All right, that's an interesting question, James. It's a question about a man with Duchenne muscular dystrophy who's coming in with daytime fatigue and what to do next. So I look forward to learning the answer. Now let's move on to my interview. Now I'm speaking with Trish Critic, um, who is the chair of the section of medical education. And I'm uh, interested to understand how this section came into being. Um, it's, a, it's a new section, and so... Trish, why did you and the other founding members feel that um, a section of medical education was needed in the ATS? It's a great question. Over the last, really, several years, there's been a group of us who are clinician educators who would come together every international conference and in between email and talk about issues that we held common because we were all educators. And we would talk about ways to collaborate, might come up with studies that we wanted to do together or strategies for teaching. 
and look forward to the times we informally came together at the international conference and really long for a way for us to more regularly come together and advance clinical educators and advance medical education in pulmonary and critical care medicine as a group. So I'd say probably even six or seven years ago, we started talking about how could we create a home for clinician educators within the American Thoracic Society. And as we talked about it more and more, we evolved to this idea of becoming a section of the Assembly on Behavioral Sciences and Health Sciences Research, which were a group that were very welcoming to us to say, yes, we're happy to help you create this home. And in creating that home, we really hoped that we would make a way for educators to find each other within a really large organization so that we could do more of that collaboration around curricular initiatives, around medical education research, around novel teaching techniques, around a bunch of stuff that we thought as a group we could do a lot more. And so with that in mind, we started the process of becoming a section, which took several years. I think I really need to call it Dave Roberts and Tao Lee as the folks who really spearheaded this initiative. Right. So it sounds like um, the section came, was born from a group um, of like-minded educators who who were meeting anyway, um, and you were sort of formalizing that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the other thing that we felt was important is that Over the last decade or so, there's really been a growth in the recognition of being a clinician educator as a valid academic pathway. And in some places in pulmonary critical care medicine, we've been leading the way. In some places in pulmonary critical care medicine, we really haven't. And so I think the other big thing we wanted to do was try to work towards validating that career pathway by saying, yes, there's a cohort of people who are choosing this as their career pathway, not because they're not doing research, but because they want to focus on education and all that comes with being an educator. And that we as a society, the American Thoracic Society, embrace that career pathway, want to foster that career pathway, and want to support the careers of these faculty members. So I think it was there was some of that kind of organic grassroots, people getting together and talking already and finding each other. But I think it was also that we wanted to... to Um, make a little bit of a statement that this is an important and valued career pathway that the organization should and needs to invest in as we've been investing in the the career pathways of physician scientists. So I think it it was a little bit of both. And then I think we wanted to leverage the fact that we have so many great clinician educators within the American Thoracic Society that there was a small group of us getting together already, but wouldn't it be great if we could get a lot more people and particularly think about the junior folks who are just starting out on this career pathway. How can we mentor them? How can we foster their career growth? So it was a bunch of stuff that came together for us to take the steps necessary to become a section. And I would say overall it's been a good start to the new section. Yeah, great. From my point of view as a uh, a junior clinician educator, I've certainly um, found uh, all sorts of useful um, aspects of of there being a section for medical educators. Um, uh, And so on that topic, um, could you tell us a bit about what are the, um, what is being provided by the section for ATS members? Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. So I think Obviously, this is all a work in progress. We're still kind of a baby section, and we're 
steadily growing and steadily adding to our repertoire of things that we do. But I think our goal is to be a home for folks interested in collaborating kind of diversely. So one of our first big initiatives was bringing people together to have a series of webinars. Um, And that effort has really been led by Allison Clay. And through her efforts collaborating with a lot of different people, we've had now four uh, webinars, which have been really well attended. And we've put all of those webinars on our website so people who couldn't attend the original webinar can still get the benefit of them. So, And they've been kind of on the spectrum of things that we think that both clinician educators as well as all members of the American Thoracic Society might be interested in. So some have been more focused on um, things that a, a fellowship director or a faculty in a fellowship might focus on. And an example of that would be the measuring milestones focusing on fellow assessment that was done by Hank Fessler. But we've also done things focusing on giving effective feedback or practical tips for large group presentations um, by Andy Lux, which I think are really resources for the whole membership. So we've had a series of webinars, and what's really exciting is that we're in the process of putting together a bunch of new webinars. Uh, Our next one that's going to focus on bronchoscopy training and competency evaluation you know about and are going to be engaged in and be part of. Um, but there's other ones kind of in the, in the books as well. So we have a series of webinars that we're really excited about. And we've been collaborating with BSHSR on a few of them as well. We did one with the rest, the kind of main assembly on how to effectively fit in time to write into your busy academic life, which is a relevant thing for physician scientists as well as clinician educators. So really excited about about the webinars. So that's one big thing we've been working on. The second big thing that we've been working on is trying to establish a fund for um, supporting clinical educators doing medical education research. And we've been collaborating with the ATS Foundation and working with ATS leadership to create a fund where people can donate money towards Um, funding future medical education research, and then trying to figure out how are we going to do this? How are we going to, what are the right kind of projects? What's the right amount of money? What's the time frame? What's our focus? And really trying to use that partnership with the foundation and the leadership of the society to say, we think it's really important that not only do we have a place for people to come together, but that we also support those efforts at advancing research in medical education. So that's a second um, big category. And then probably the third biggest category is that we, through, again, BSHSR, have a mentoring program for junior folks. So people who are coming to the American Thoracic Society or in an international conference or not can sign up to get a mentor through our section and get paired up and then kind of work together on whatever it is a junior member is interested in. So I've had a couple mentees already. We've worked on some stuff around how do you turn your education work into scholarly output. We've worked on how to get engaged in the society, various things, um, which I think have been pretty beneficial, and we're looking forward to really growing that mentorship program. Let me pause there and see if you have any questions about any of that. Um, I've actually... um participated in a, in a couple of these things so far and found them really useful. The uh, Writing Accountability Groups webinar, um, I, I listened to that thinking, ah, I, w- I wonder if this is going to have something useful for me. As a clinician educator, I sort of view the majority of my job as as the 
as the educating, and that's the residents and the people right in front of me. But this webinar really made the point that, of course, the, the turning that into scholarship is very important for, for me as well as for researchers. And the, the tip that I really took was uh, to, uh, to write every day um, or find time to do something towards a publication every day. And I haven't quite achieved that. But I am doing better. <laughs> yeah, and I think that actually really highlights a nice part of kind of what we'd like to do with this section, and that is we want to invest in people who are teachers, right? We want to build teaching skills, and some of the stuff we've been focusing on is building teaching skills. But we'd also really like to foster that academic side of clinician educators and, and making their work scholarly, sharing what they're creating, sharing how to evaluate an educational project so that, you can see if it works or not, and then disseminate it more broadly. So I think that concept of, yeah, it's important to be an outstanding teacher and an outstanding clinician to be a clinician educator, but also then to take the next step and, and write about it and share it is um, equally important. Absolutely. Um, I feel that that's... Um that advice is something that I've, I've been hearing from, from colleagues and also from people that I've met uh, through the section of medical education. I just want to say when, when you said that, I think the other really cool thing about the section is, is that it's working and getting people connected who have are like-minded on different projects and or want to collaborate on different projects. And this has been slower to grow, and we're trying to figure out how we could use the web or other social media strategies to really bring people together, but we're starting to do that. People at different institutions are connecting to create a webinar or connecting to create resources for our website or connecting to create a podcast like this so that we start to create that community, make those connections, start to, to build relationships that are outside the boundaries of one's institution. I think for clinician educators, it's harder sometimes to find that community outside the walls of their institution because they're not collaborating necessarily on a clinical research project that's a clinical trial enrolling patients at 14 sites across the country. And so hopefully through this section, we start to build those bonds and those connections so that folks can both be mentored, share ideas, collaborate, commiserate, whatever it is, but also work on projects together. And I think we're just starting to, to see that in the section. Absolutely. I think another way that the section's working on that is the way that it's organizing posters. Could, could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So in terms of our programming at the International Conference, it's obviously a focus for all groups in ATS. And, and we really want to have a presence at the International Conference because we think it's important that there's programming for educators as well as content from educators that we think would be useful to the whole um, membership. So we've been working hard on soliciting proposals for the international conference for all different forums, ranging from meet the professor seminars, workshops, symposium, but also posters and poster discussion sessions. So in the past, posters kind of got that focus on medical education were disseminated throughout all our different assemblies and were kind of hard to find. You had to hunt and peck through critical care or clinical problems or whatever assemblies set of posters, trying to find the one or two that were focused on education. And we're really trying to funnel those applications now into one pathway so that they're all at least reviewed by somebody from the section on medical education as well as others, and then programmed in chunks whether it's 
a poster discussion session or a poster viewing session to facilitate those who are interested in that content being able to find them and be able to engage with those folks who are presenting their posters and their studies. So I think we've made some progress on that. I think there's still room for improvement. We'd still love to see more, but I think we've made it easier for people to find the content that's relevant to them, and we've made it easier for folks to submit the content that's focused on education. So I think that's a major step forward, and big thanks to Jeremy Richards, who's really shepherded that process for us in the section. Um, We also are really continuing to push hard to have some content about education. So we do have this year again three officially meet the professor sessions that are focusing on medical education content. We did the same thing last year. They were all sold out. So we're enthusiastic that we'll have a similar outcome uh, outcome again this year. It's great. The uh, the organization for the poster sessions worked really well for me. I um, ended up with a poster in a, a in a group that meant that I learned a lot about my area, which was which was very helpful. Um, great. Um, so I think we've covered a lot of aspects about the section, um, why it was founded, and uh, what are the um, what, what is it providing to its members. Are there any other comments that you want to make um, about the section or about um, the the challenges um, that clinician educators face uh, in the field of pulmonary and critical care medicine? Well, I'll, I'll touch on the fir- the latter first, and that is what are the challenges for clinician educators in pulmonary critical care medicine? And I think what I would say is, wow, it's gotten a lot better in the last decade since I started as a faculty member. And I think a lot more divisions and departments are starting to see the value of folks who choose a career pathway as a clinician educator. Um, but I think we still have a ways to go. So having a way to to support junior faculty in this pathway is going to remain important. And I think figuring out how folks on that pathway get promoted, and that means having a role on a national or regional level, which the ATS is a perfect opportunity for that, and turning their work into scholarship, which I'm thrilled to say the annals of the ATS has had a medical education edition last year and again this year, and I'm hoping for the future as well. But a, a venue for folks to turn their work into something that's published is really important. So we're still figuring out all the routes to career development and career growth for clinician educators, but I'd say growing traction for this being a valid career pathway and growing cohort of people to mentor junior and mid-career clinician educators as they kind of, quote-unquote, grow up. In terms of the section, what I'd say most about the section is it's still being defined, and it's a great time to get involved. We really want to reach out to all the folks out there who define themselves as teachers, who define themselves as clinician educators, who want to find other folks who are interested in this to work together, to collaborate, to learn from, to mentor, whatever that is. And even in the first 12 months of being a section, it's already really clear that we're learning that some of the ideas that we had at the beginning were great, but there's new people coming and having better ideas. So we really want to engage new, energetic, thoughtful folks who can say, wow, you have a section? Could the section do this? And the answer is probably yes, it could do that if we have the people to help lead those efforts. So I've talked a lot about what we're doing. What I'm most excited about is what we could do, and I'm pretty confident that whatever we could do, I haven't thought of yet. 
So I would love to see more members, more active members, and more creative members who say, how about this? And I'd say, you know, the options are incredibly wide for what we could do, and the next few years will really show how special a group I think this is. That's great. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be a member of the section of medical education, um, and I look forward to watching it grow. Um, thank you so much, Trish, for telling us all about it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. I think it's a great addition to the American Thoracic Society and really, as I said before, our home for anyone who really thinks of themselves as a teacher or a clinician educator. It's been a pleasure. Now, I know all of our listeners are eager to get back to our MOCQ from the start of the podcast. James, can you remind us of the question? Absolutely. We had a 24-year-old man with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and a forced vital capacity of 40% predicted coming in for routine follow-up, although now complaining of new daytime fatigue. On examination, he is in no respiratory distress with a BMI of 24.4, saturations of 96% on room air, and a modified malampati class 3 airway. The cardiac and pulmonary exams are otherwise normal. The sleep study showed a reduced sleep efficiency of 66%, and rapid eye movement-related hypoxemia with a total AHI of 3.4 events per hour and oxygen saturation nadir of 85%. And the question is, which is the next best step in the management of this patient? A, tracheostomy for consideration of invasive mechanical ventilation. B, initiate nocturnal oxygen. C, initiate nocturnal non-invasive ventilation. D, reassurance and continued serial clinical evaluation, or E, initiate nocturnal continuous positive airway pressure? Oh, yeah, this is a great question. Well, I'm concerned that his daytime fatigue is due to sleep-disordered breathing, and the stem tells us that on PSG, he was found to have an AHI of only 3.4. That's lower than the cutoff for diagnosing obstructive sleep apnea, which is an AHI of 5. However, his oxygen sats were low, so I'm concerned that his weakness is progressing and that he is hypoventilating at night. Excellent. So what do you think about the answer choices? Well, I don't think he's hypoventilating during the day as his SATs were okay in clinic, so I would not go for tracheostomy. Nocturnal oxygen would improve his nocturnal oxygen SATs, but not assist with the likely hypercarbia from hypoventilation. I also would not choose serial follow-up because he's presenting with new symptoms, and given the nature of his neuromuscular disease, it's only going to progress over time. Okay, so now you're down to answer choice C, initiate nocturnal non-invasive ventilation, and E, initiate nocturnal continuous positive airway pressure. Yep, well, despite his high malampati score, his AHI is low and using CPAP wouldn't address hypoventilation. CPAP would only be expected to stent open his airway, which doesn't seem to be the limiting factor. Bi-level non-invasive ventilation, on the other hand, would support his own ventilatory efforts, treat nocturnal hypoventilation, and improve his daytime symptoms. Great. So you'll go with E then, initiate nocturnal non-invasive ventilation? Yes, I will. Correct. Nice job. 
The authors of the question also note many of the points you raised about using nocturnal NIV or non-invasive ventilation in patients with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, particularly that the sleep-disordered breathing precedes respiratory failure. They also noted that nocturnal non-invasive ventilation can improve the quality of life and prolong survival in some neuromuscular diseases. The ATS guidelines recommend annual evaluation of sleep-disordered breathing in Duchenne muscular dystrophy patients starting from the time they are using a wheelchair and or whenever clinically indicated. Thanks, James. That was a great question. The ATS has a repository of these MOC questions for anyone who is interested in learning more. Well, that wraps up this first section of Medical Education Podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back with another episode in a few months. And if there's a topic you're interested in or a paper you think we should discuss, you can contact us at meded, that's M-E-D-E-D, at thoracic.org. And someone filters these emails, but if you put podcast in the subject line, we're sure to get it. Yes, like all good educators, we want your feedback. That email address again is meded at thoracic.org. Also, check out the new SOME website, where you can find all those educational resources mentioned by Trish in the interview. I'm Rosemary Adamson. And I'm James Town, and thanks for listening.